Good evening, God speak. Great to uh, be with you on this almost New Year's Eve. It's hard to believe, isn't it? 2024, we are on the, the doorstep of that. We are in uh, Genesis chapter 22 tonight. If you have a Bible, you want to make your way there. But I must warn you, I'm doing an experiment for the next few months from the NLT translation, which is the New Living Translation, which I've really enjoyed over the last two years and getting our feet wet. So you can follow along on the screen for the specific, it's the context obviously is the same, but the wording is a little bit different. So if you've ever come to church and you have a different translator than the preacher, you're kind of like, uh, 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 this doesn't have the same flow. So just a heads up, so we won't be uh, handing out any uh, Bibles this evening or tomorrow. We look at our message tonight, the heart test. And uh, many of you have had those wonderful EKGs or whatever uh, echocardiogram in some kind of health experience. My dad was having some heart struggles, and so we got him into the doctor, and I, my friend ran the cath lab, which is the people that do the camera work inside the heart, and so he was a worship leader at our church uh, on the weekends and by day, kind of like a superhero in the hearts of people, literally, with his little camera looking in their hearts. So when my dad goes through this test afterwards, this guy's name is Ben, I said, Ben, I want to see my dad's heart. What I know, I know it's black on the outside. I want to see on the inside. No, I didn't say that. I'm just teasing. <laughs> and he goes, oh, man, because my dad was like 82 at the time. And so I go in and I'm, I look at all the, the camera work inside. He goes, Rick, Ben, who sees hearts, you know, eight hours a day, basically. He said, when I'm 82, I want my heart to look like this. There was no buildup. There was none of the, the stuff that oftentimes people with heart struggles have. And they diagnosed him with some other issues. But to literally see the inside of somebody's heart, kind of kind of crazy. And Yet, God is testing our hearts all the time, isn't he? He's testing our hearts through life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And depending on how long you have lived on planet Earth, how many times you have been around the sun in your journey, you've had some times of real heart testing. And for some of us in the room, this year, 2024, is going to be a test of the heart. There are times in our life where the Lord just comes along and he just puts his finger on something in our hearts because he is a jealous God and he wants the affection of your heart to be primarily between you and him and then all other loves cascade in priority below that love. The greatest love is to the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in that dynamic, you and I, our hearts, in our fallen sinful nature, our hearts are these idol factories that just produce, oh, I love this more, or I love that more. And we pursue the wrong things. We give the wrong type of energy and money and effort towards things that will never in turn love us back the way that God will. The way that we invest in our love relationship with him, the the Bible says that those who worship idols become like those idols meaning that whatever I give my affection to, I begin to imitate or emulate or I become like that. So if you are loving God with all of your heart, that also is true. You are becoming more like Jesus 
as we with unveiled faces behold, as in the mirror, the glory of the Lord. We are being changed. It's a metamorphosis from glory to glory. And so we see a guy in his discipleship journey that now has been walking with the Lord some 50 years. His name is Abraham. And in chapter 22, the Lord is going to give him the ultimate test. A test that's startling and shocking, and yet we see not only what God is going for to test his heart, but the symbol of this test that has ramifications 2,000 years from then, pointing all the way to Jesus on the cross at Calvary. We pick it up as we see, first of all, Job knew what it was like to have his heart tested in Job 23.10. He says, he knows the ways that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. You know, the Lord knows the path you're on. He knows the way that the decisions you're taking and making, and through life, he is doing this work. The test for Job's heart was the Satan told God that if he removed all the blessings from Job's life, his children, his wealth, everything but his wife, basically, he would curse him to his face. Job will curse you to your face. And that's where Satan wants to take us. Adversity, Satan wants to use difficulties, trials, hardships in our life to drive us away from God and to shake our fist at God and curse him. God uses trials to purify us. It says, then we'll come through like gold. And this is what Peter had in mind when he says, though your faith is more precious than gold, you are going to, as God tests it, it comes through. Those old school goldsmiths that would melt down ore and they would keep pouring off the dross, pouring off the dross, skimming off the dross. They knew that they had finally arrived when they could see their own reflection in the gold that was smelted. And that's what God is looking for, to create more character like him in your life and my life. Job knew this, but now Abraham's gonna discover this. In verse one of chapter 22, we see the heart test. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The Lord calls to Abraham sometime after, obviously, the things that took place in chapter 21. And sometimes later, you know, trials or difficulties or lessons, God is gracious to us. Sometimes they come in rapid fire. Sometimes we have a break in between. But sometime later, here, Isaac now is, we believe, between 30 and uh, 20 and 30 years of age. He's an adult man. Abraham has enjoyed this, these years of just this incredible love relationship with this son that he waited so long for. He waited from the promise for 25 years. Now he has him. He named him Isaac because when God announced to Abraham and to Sarah, they both laughed and they said, the Lord's like, well, that's a great name. Just call him laughter. That's what Isaac means because it's so laughable that a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man could have a newborn son. But now 20 to 30 years has went by. Sometimes in a Sunday school cartoon, you might see a, a young boy, Isaac. That's not the case. He's a grown man. And here the Lord comes to him and says, hey, I want you to go to the land or the mountains of Moriah, and I want you to offer your son, whom you love so much, as a burnt sacrifice. 
Now, what if God asked any of us that kind of question or that test? There was nothing really that Abraham loved more than this son. Now, he calls him his only son. We know that he had Ishmael, but the Lord doesn't acknowledge the son that was produced through the scheming and conniving of the flesh between Sarah, Hagar, and Abraham. He said, no, this is the son. I have one son and one daughter. My son is 35 years old, and uh, I love my son with all my heart. And I can't imagine even having the scare when he was young. He had this issue on his skin that broke out when he was about four years of age. And it began to grow, and I was really troubled by it. I mean, it, it showed up quick, and, and so I took him to the dermatologist. He's four years old. And I'm in the waiting room with my four-year-old son on my lap. My wife is home with our, our baby daughter. And uh, I'm looking on the picture in the dermatologist's office, and it has these pictures of melanoma. And I'm like, these pictures look exactly what's on my son's side. And I'm like, I don't know anything. I'm not a doctor. I mean, but that does look like that <laughs> on his side. And we get in, and I knew by the doctor's reaction. He was one of those doctors that has no bedside manner. You ever had one of those? They're like a robot. I am a genius robot. I am here to tell you what is going on. <laughs> and uh, he, he looks at it and he says, well, Mr. Brown, this is very serious. He says, we're gonna take this off right now. Now, normally you go to a doctor and he goes, come back in two weeks and we'll take a bite. You know, they string this thing out, you know? And, he, and I knew when his urgency says, I'm taking this off your son's side right now. I knew that it was serious. And he said, Mr. Brown, this looks like melanoma from my experience. And he said, we're gonna take this and you're gonna have five to seven days. Aren't those the worst five to seven days in your whole life, right? Any of us who have had that test. And I said, well, doc, if this is melanoma and you take it off, then what? He goes, well, Mr. Brown, then we'll have a more aggressive surgery and we'll probably actually take out some of the ribs because that's how fast we have to take part of his side. I said, okay. And he scooped off this you know, chunk of my son's skin. And fortunately, after five to seven days, it was a series of broken blood vessels that looked like that, but it was not melanoma, praise the Lord. But in that five to seven days, I was thinking as I had this four-year-old and, and you know, it's hard to describe. I didn't know, I actually didn't know what it was like for a parent to love kids. Kids kind of annoyed me, even when I became a Christian. I mean, they're kind of noisy, they annoy me. And I would be like, yeah, I guess you gotta have them. I mean, the planet has to exist. But I, honestly, I'm just not a kid person. It's just not the way I am. And uh, then my wife says, hey, I wanna have kids. I said, well, I guess, I guess we'll try that out. We'll see what that's like, right? And... But there's something, the Greeks have a special, you know, they, the Greek language is so wonderful, and that's the New Testament being written in Greek because it's so descriptive, unlike the English language. They have all these different words for specific types of love. And so one of the, the words is storge, which means a family affection, that something happens within you. That, that day my son was born, and and I saw my son for the first time. Once again, I'm not into kids. I have never been into kids. Didn't play. I mean, I, I thought, well, I'll try to, I see what the Bible says about being a good dad. I'll try to be a good dad. I don't know what I'm doing. I have no clue. 
and I was raised by wolves. So what do you do? It's like, you don't, you don't even know how to raise kids. And, and so, uh, but when my son was born, the, the storge, though I didn't even at that time know the Greek word storge for family affection, something broke up open inside of me that this is, this is from my wife's body and my body. This, this is our son. It was almost like if you've, my kids grew up in the Lion King old cartoon, you know, and at the, the beginning of it, it's just like Rafiki's like, you know, in the circle of life, he's holding up this little lion cub for the Lion King. And it was like that. I got this kid. I'm like, have you, look at this kid. You've never seen a boy like this in your whole life, right? And it's a baby. I mean, everybody's seen kids. It's like, but I'm like, no, no, this, this is the kid of all kids that's ever been born on the planet. And here's a guy that, how do you flip that switch? How do you go from, I mean, kids are kind of annoying to, whoa, this is amazing. The day my son was born, I went down to the Christian bookstore and I bought a picture Bible, which we wore out a couple of those, raising him, and I brought a football. I realized I was really impatient. It took years before either one of those things were effective, right? But the day that he was born, I bought that. And then my daughter came along, my affection for my daughter. But your affection for your son and your daughter are very different. They're very just, I have just like night and day, though both very healthy and positive relationship with my children. I can imagine the Lord coming to me and saying, Rick, you know how much you love your son. I want you to give him to me. I want you to offer him to me. When I was waiting for that test result to come from my son, whether this was melanoma or not, we had dedicated him to the Lord at church. And I said, Jesus, I gave you my son. He's yours. I guess if you want to take him home early, he's yours. And some have had that, the difficulty of losing a child. But they're the Lord's, right? If you're a child of God, you're like, they're, they're the Lord's. And I had to surrender that in that moment, like waiting for that five days. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I hope this is not the case. And it didn't turn out to be the case. But I'm thankful after the fact for the test of my heart. Because here, Abraham, he has to go and walk through the motions of it. Now, God never intended for human sacrifice. But in this ancient time, he meets Abraham where Abraham had been connected with. He came from serving the moon god in Ur of the Chaldees, Joshua tells us in Joshua 24 that Abraham and all his family, they were all idol worshipers until God broke into his world. So human sacrifice was a normal thing in their culture. So for a God to ask for a child or a son would not have struck him that strangely from the deities of the land. But this is what God specifically says about this issue because we're gonna see that he'll rescue Abraham and he does not take his son's life, but it was simply a test of the heart. Jeremiah 32, 35, the Lord says, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to Molech, which people offered their children to this God. I never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. What an incredible evil. That's the way the Lord described human sacrifice. But in this case, because he is not literally going to ask him to do this. He's going to intervene. He just wants to see what Abraham's response is. It says, and <laughs> if you got this uh, message yesterday from God, how long do you delay before you pull that trigger? Right? Oh, you know, we'll get around to that next year. Right? We'll get around to that in a month. When, 
It says in verse three, the next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. He got up early the very next morning. Obedience, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Love is displayed by obedience. Not about big talk, not about raising your hands higher than everybody else, not about being exuberant, it's about obedience. That is the mark, that is the revelation of a person's heart of love for God, is your obedience. And Abraham gets up early in the morning and he obeys, he responds. Now when I was raising my kids, there were three things that when you ask a child to do something and you're training kids, there's three, sometimes you're wondering as a parent, right, I don't know when to discipline them. And so there's, there's three questions basically you have to ask yourself. And I share that because it, it, it's true also in our adult walk with God. You ask your child to do something and they challenge you, like I'm not gonna do that or they, they wanna fight back. Or they make excuses why they can't do that. Or they delay doing it. Delay is the ultimate in, in passive aggressive behavior of children. They may not have the courage to challenge, they may not wanna make an excuse, but they will delay as long as they possibly can. Also in our hearts, when the Lord asks us to do something, do we challenge him like, I don't agree with that? Do we make excuses, oh, that doesn't work in my case, I get a free pass? Or do we simply delay in the obedience process from what the Lord is revealing to us? Abraham got up early, he saddled a donkey, he took two servants with him, and off they went. It's gonna be a three-day journey all the way to the mountains of Moriah from Beersheba. It's about 43 miles, if you will, as you uh, go from Beersheba up north to where Mount Moriah is. Now we have the faith test. Now we have the heart test. This is what Abraham loves the most. God put his finger right on what he loved the most, and he said, why don't you give that to me? It's the same kind of heart test that the rich young ruler got, right? He came to Jesus and said, Master, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, he quoted the, the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. He goes, you know, honor your father and mother. And he goes through the list and he goes, oh, I've done all that. And he goes, well, you have one thing lacking, which you see the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart. He said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And it says the young ruler went away sad because he was very wealthy and he would not give up what Jesus asked him to give up because Jesus' heart test, he put his finger right on what he loved the most and that was his possessions. He loved his possessions more than he loved Jesus. And he walked away. It was the only person that Jesus asked that because that was the issue of his heart. The issue of your heart might be different. The issue of my heart may be different. But the faith test comes in verse four. On the third day of their journey, so it takes three days to get there, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will. Notice this word. This is why I call it the faith test. We already looked at the heart test. This is the faith test for what he says. We will worship there, he tells the two servants, and then we will come right back. Wait a second, you don't go offer somebody as a burnt sacrifice and then come back with them, right? So Abraham placed the wood of the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he, his, 
himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them walked on together. Abraham had something going on inside of him that you and I cannot see. Actually, the story never reveals to us. As a matter of fact, we have to wait 2,000 years till the writer of Hebrews gives us exactly what was going on in the heart and the mind of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll share that in a little bit. But now we have the surrender test. It's one thing that, okay, the Lord said, I'm going to do this, and you take off, and you know you have three days' journey. There are a lot of things can happen within that three days. Maybe God will change his mind. And then you arrive, and now you're walking up the hill, and now you have to have the surrender test. You're actually going to do what you are committed or you've made action to do. In the surrender, in verse 7, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on uh, together. When they had arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, I was hoping you'd show up. (laughs) Here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Imagine having this conversation with your son. He puts the wood and he puts a bundle of wood. Does it take a lot of wood to offer a burnt sacrifice? Absolutely. It's a big pile of wood. And he puts it on Isaac. And so Isaac's going to be carrying with this pile of wood probably on top of his two shoulders or up on his one shoulder. And he's like, Dad, we got the fire. You got the, uh, we have the wood, but there's no, we're going to offer a burnt sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? He goes, oh, the Lord will provide it. The Lord's going to provide that sacrifice that we need. Once again, he's making a statement of faith, not sure how everything is going to turn out. He gets all the way there, and in verse 9, when it says, then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. This is the surrender test, because you see, this has to be a willingness on his son's part to participate in the test of the father's heart to lay his life down. Because you see, if I'm 130 years old and I got a 30-year-old young man, there's no way that this 130-year-old guy is going to be able to hogtie a 30-year-old able-bodied young man, right? He's going to wait, 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 pops, pops, you're getting a little senile, right? This is, I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm not getting on that pile of wood. You're not going to put a knife to my throat. Dad, you're losing it. You're losing it, Dad. And it's just not going to happen, but we have none of the dialogue. We have none of the exchange. We, we, we don't see what happens there, but we can only conjecture what that might have sounded like. What would that have sounded like? They arrive. There's no sacrifice. And Abraham finally has to be real with his son. He says, well, Isaac, the God that we serve, the God that promised me you would be given to me as a son, that through your life and your body, 
there would be descendants like the stars of the heaven and like the sand of the seashore. This God that I serve, he asked me to offer you as a burnt sacrifice. Son, I, I, I can't force you to be tied up. I can't force you to lay down your life. I can't force you to crawl on this pile of wood. But son, all I can say is that both of us are walking by faith and you know God and I know God now. After all these years, I mean, I've been walking with the Lord. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know how he's testing us here. I don't know how he's testing our hearts. I don't know how he's testing our faith. I don't know how he's testing us to surrender to this issue. But son, are you willing to lay your life down and trust God and trust me? It had to be a conversation somewhat like that. Because then Isaac's like, okay, Dad, but if you're going to offer me as a burnt sacrifice, you better tie these ropes really hard. You, you better do it really firm. Reminds me of the story of a little four-year-old boy and his older sister who was seven who had a rare blood condition. And the only way they could fix this blood condition and the, the of the daughter was to get a transfusion from her brother because he had what she needed in her blood. But when they asked the little boy at the age of four, obviously they wanted him to participate in the process, they, they looked at him and said, well, you know, will you, will you give your blood to your sister? But in his mind, he thought they were saying, will you die for your sister? And he goes, no, I'm not gonna give my blood for my sister. And they're like, well, they're not explaining it fully to him. And so the little four-year-old's like, I'm, I mean, I love my sister, but I don't want to give my blood for my sister and die. And they're like, we can't believe it that you're, you know, being so selfish and you won't help your little, you know, your big sister with blood and like going on and on. And after three or four days, he finally goes, okay, 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 I'll do it. I'll do it. And they go in and they put the girl on the table and they hook her up with the IV or I mean with the, the, the bloodline and and. They lay him down on the table next to her so that the transfusion of the blood can flow to her. And as soon as they put it in, the blood started flowing. The little boy looked up at his mom and dad with big tears in his eyes. And he said, so when do I die? You see, he finally came to this surrendered resolution that I guess I, guess I love my sister. I guess I give my, give my life for her. But as soon as the blood leaves my body, I'm dead. So he had made a decision that he was going to die willingly for his sister. There's a willingness that Isaac has to display here that there's really no other way to explain it than he willingly did this. Everything that brings us to this place, as we see in, in verse 13, then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in it by its horns in the thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son, Abraham named the place uh, Yahweh Yireh or Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God will come through. God will provide what we need in that situation. Now, everything that I've said in this Old Testament sense, since Jesus is the absolute pinnacle of the point the main point of the scriptures about his redemption for mankind. We should be able to open the Bible anywhere in the scriptures and find Jesus. And there's very few places as vivid as this picture right here, as an Old Testament picture of what was gonna take place in the future at the cross. 
Notice that we have a father and a son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know that the first time love is mentioned in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, is this story in Genesis 22. It's not the love of a man for a woman or a woman for a man. It's the love of a father for a son. For God so loved you, for God so loved me, that he gave his only begotten son, as we see in this picture of Abraham and Isaac. Now think about this, as this unfolds. Now as this unfolds, they get up early and they take off, but he takes two servants. Now it says they saddled up a donkey, and then they take these two servants. So as they're walking for three days, and they're going on the way, when Jesus was crucified, who did he go with? Two people, two thieves, right? Jesus is gonna be crucified between two thieves. And so as we see Isaac walking with Abraham, and here's the two servants walking alongside him. Then Abraham puts the wood on top of Isaac, and so what would it look like with Jesus walking up to the cross with the wood across his shoulders, going all the way up to Calvary. You see the symbolism through this entire thing is vivid that 2,000 years later, and why does he tell him to go three days journey to Mount Moriah? Well, Mount Moriah, to jump ahead for those who are running the projection, I had this a little later in the message, but I wanna bring it up here now. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, it says, so Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father. The temple was built on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite, the site that David had selected. So, for the sake of our time, we're not gonna get into it, but David basically ordered a census to number all of the men in Israel, which was against God's word. And a plague broke out and 70,000 Israelites were killed. And, and, and David seized the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword while he was on the threshing floor of Arunah. He's also called Ornan. And, and he cries out, he says, Lord, you know, may, may my sin be upon me and my descendants, but these sheep have done nothing, these people in Israel. And so the angel of the Lord stopped basically killing people because of David's sin. But David ends up offering a sacrifice on the threshing floor of Arunah. He uses his oxen, he uses his, uh, the wood, the implements that are there, the farm implements, and he does it all right there. And then he ends up buying the piece of ground. And later, when Solomon is gonna build the temple, where does he build it? On the ground that David bought. When you go to Israel today, on the Temple Mount is Mount Moriah. The highest point of Mount Moriah is a quarry that is called Golgotha, the place of the skull. When you go to Jerusalem, now it's broken down because of an earthquake and some different erosion that's happened, but there's a very clear skull that is in the side of this hill that they call Golgotha, the place of the skull, Calvary in the Latin. And I am convinced that they go this three days journey all the way to the place that the Lord showed Abraham 
and where Jesus would be literally crucified 2,000 years later, this whole drama is being played out between a father and a son and a sacrifice. As a matter of fact, when it says, and the angel of the Lord showed up and said, Abraham, Abraham, don't touch the boy. The angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament is none other than the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus showed up on Mount Moriah, said, hey, Abraham, don't sacrifice Isaac. I'll be here in 2,000 years. I'll take care of it. The other thing is, is that Isaac had to willingly lay his life down. And what did Jesus say? Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down and I will take it up again. The Romans did not crucify Jesus. The Jews did not crucify Jesus. The, the world didn't crucify Jesus. You and my sins crucified Jesus. That's why he went there. He went there driven by love for you and I so that he would offer himself willingly as a sacrifice for you and me. And every imagery all the way, even to the place that he told his servants that are there, hey, the boy and I are gonna go over there and worship and we're gonna come back. And for the first time, 2,000 years later, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 tells us exactly what was going on in the side of, inside of Abraham. What kind of faith does a guy have to go three days journey to the place God shows him and he's actually willing to lift the knife to cut his son's throat and offer him there. The writer of Hebrews says this, in verse 19, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again, and in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. When? After three days. Jesus dies on the cross, three days later, he rises from the dead. That morning that Abraham woke up, his son was dead in his heart. And for three days journey, he's agonizing over the death of his son. And then when the Lord brings the ram to, to be the substitute, the Lord would provide a different sacrifice. It's like that day when he untied him and he got off. It was like resurrection Sunday morning for Abraham. My son's alive. He's been dead in my heart. I had to, sacri I had to offer him. Now what kind of faith does it take? This was the mathematics of faith. Abraham, this is what he thought. God promised me Isaac. And he promised me from Isaac, which he's only acknowledging Isaac, so I have one son. He promised me Isaac, and he said that through Isaac's body, physical body, through his children, his descendants, Isaac's not even married yet. Through his body, our descendants are gonna be like the stars in the heaven and the sands of the seashore. Therefore, this is the mathematics of faith. Therefore, Abraham reasons in his mind, if God promised me that through this boy, he's going to give us descendants like the stars in the heaven, the sand of the seashore, then God is gonna raise him from the dead after I sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now, Abraham's never seen a resurrection. Nobody had. But by faith, that's what he believed. He believed God was gonna raise him from the dead. Jesus himself said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Abraham somehow in this whole exchange, in this whole exchange, Abraham's had some glimpse of the prophetic of what God was gonna do, whether he could see through, Jesus said it. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, that I was gonna come and show up and do this. And he was glad. The mystery of that, we don't fully acknowledge when I get to heaven and we're eating Shekinah berries at the tree of life. 
I'm going to be asking Abraham, now, really, what was going on in your mind in that moment? What were you thinking? The mind-blowing thing about this is that this, this test of faith, going back to our, our process that we were looking at in verse 15, the test results, the angel of the Lord, who is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus, most Bible teachers believe, called again to Abraham from heaven. So this is the third time he's talked to him in this short little period of time. This is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies and through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed all because you have obeyed me. His obedience proved his love and affection that who had the number one place in Abraham's heart, what resided every single one of us in this room. I want you to know you have a throne room inside of you. It's a throne room of who you worship. It's a throne room of what you worship. It's a throne room of the principal, dynamic, most driving passion of your heart and your life. And it's easy for other things to come in and shove God off the throne. I had a friend who was a, a bull rider, and he had made it to the top 15 in uh, the NFR, National, uh, the, the Cowboys Association. And him and I were working together, and he was a Christian, and, and we were working one day, and he said, you know, Rick, I'm really struggling with idolatry. I, I, I really believe that I love riding bulls and going to win a national championship in bull riding more than I love Jesus. And I, so we talked about that. And he had, I mean, he was confessing, like, I, I feel like this is idolatry. It, it's a passion that Jesus should be number one. And I said, well, if you just talk to Jesus about that, he's going to help you with that because that's going to honor him. Just talk to him about it. Just say, Lord, I don't want to have this. I want you to be number one. And, and so we talked about this. And a, and a few months later, he was going to this rodeo in Nevada. And he was traveling with a couple other bull riders, and they were going through in the car. They were saying, hey, what's your goals for the next five years? And the other two bull riders said pretty much the same thing. They want to go to the national finals rodeo uh, in the next five years. They want to win a championship in the next 10 years. And they laid out, and they came to Jeff, my friend, who was 25 at the time. And they came to him, and just a couple of months earlier, he was wrestling with this idolatry. And they asked him, Jeff, what's your goal? And he goes, I just want to be with Jesus in heaven. I'm going to do my best at rodeo, but I'm going to love Jesus. That day he was with Jesus because he died a few hours later when a bull stepped on his head. My friend Ross, who was with him at the time, called me. They couldn't find his wife, Kelly, who his wife was pregnant with at the same time as my wife. And we had just went to church on this previous Sunday with the two of them and played uh, badminton in my front yard and had a barbecue and this Sunday we're getting the call that Jeff's dead and I have to find his wife so that we can try to get to the trauma center in Reno so that she could hold his hand before he breathed his last. We didn't make it in time. He's dead. But the journey of the heart, your heart is constantly being distracted by putting something else on the throne of your heart. It can be a human it can be a possession. It can be a position. It can, I, I want to accumulate this. I want to get that. 
whatever it is. And the Lord has this desire to be on the throne of your heart. Every other single idol that you'll prop up in your heart will never, ever love you back. Ever. Ever. Ask the person that chases their whole life the idolatry of money. That money will never love you back. Of fame. That fame will never love you back. Of the position. It will never love you back. Why not spend your lifetime in loving someone that will love you in return and build a relationship that will be eternal in nature and you'll be with him forever and ever. These are the things that the tests of the heart are revealing in Abraham's life. It's the test of the heart that his son Isaac is willing to do this. And by the way, the the test prize, so to speak, the test results are in. I mean, he was obedient, and this is going to be this incredible reward. But it ends here, and it might hit you funny. The chapter ends in verse 19 through 24. It says, Then they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued to live. Soon after this, Abraham heard that Milcah, his brother Nahor's wife, had borne Nahor eight sons. And then in verse 23 it says, Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. So the very eighth son, the baby of the family from Nahor, this would be Nahor's nephew, and uh, had a, a child by the name of Rebekah. And that's going to be Isaac's bride. Now from his resurrection experience, so to speak, three days later and he rises off the pile of wood, you're not going to see physically, you're not going to see Jesus or not going to see Isaac again until he's introduced with his bride. Who is the bride of Jesus? The church, us, his people. And so the symbolism just continues on as we will look at that in the coming weeks. But the beauty of this is that God has the plan to bring us through the test in life. And sometimes, you know what? We don't get the Isaac back. Sometimes we do offer something. But we commit it to the Lord. Sometimes we lose a child. Sometimes we're asked to give up something that uh, is very painful. Or you've invested a lot in it. And the Lord says, I want you to give this up. 30 years ago, I went to place called Idaho Falls, Idaho, and planted a church. And I only had my wife and two little kids, so there was four of us. So we had four people in our church, a congregation of four. I couldn't get much of an offering out of them. They didn't give much. (laughs) But we spent 24 years there, and I literally spent half my life there. And we grew the church, and the church grew and we grew a school and a radio network and a TV ministry and just God opened the windows of heaven and poured out such a blessing on us. It was unbelievable. And then one day I'm going for a prayer walk talking to the Lord about some things that, about the future and the Lord says, I want you to hand this over and walk away from this. I just told my wife six weeks before that, I'm happier than I've ever been in my whole life. I'm having such a blast serving God. We had this incredible team. We had like 120 people on staff with the school and the church. And 
And I just had this dream team, and we were just like crushing it. And I was happier than I'd ever been in my whole life. The Lord says, I want you to hand this off to somebody. And the proverb, I mean, the, what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes went through my mind. You know, basically, you, you work for something your whole life, and then you hand it off, and somebody inherits it that's never worked a day in their life for what you've worked for. That's all I could think of. That verse was like in my mind. You mean, I have worked my brains out for a quarter of a century for God's glory, and I gotta give it to somebody that's never done a thing for it one day in his whole life? What do you mean I fight all the battles and he takes the spoil? Lord, pardon my French, but that sucks. But I wanted to be obedient, so I'm like, okay. That's what you want to do. I handed it off, and we came in a U-Haul 24 years before that. My wife and I left in a U-Haul. That's it. After 24 years. And I went through the biggest wrestling match of grieving. Just grieving the loss that, Lord, I mean, why, why, why do I have to... How come I got a hand? How come I have to give it up? The Lord didn't give me any answers. He said, You just trust me. You just trust me. I'll do what I'm going to do. And sometimes the Lord asks you to do things that, I mean, all of my love and affection for Jesus that was wrapped up in my service for him and the fruit that it produced, I actually thought, in my mind, I naively thought, now I'm going to be able to enjoy all the hard work, right? Now I can enjoy all of it. No. You're going to go hang out with COVID psycho California. (laughs) That's what we have for you. You hand off your beautiful ministry in freedom-loving Idaho, and you go serve Gavin Mussolini. I'm like, well, that's even worse. Right? But honestly, I mean, the Lord, I'm being very sincere and being very open. I mean, I had to really surrender my heart and my life. Because I, I started getting super bitter about it. Not about serving the Lord and being here and with you precious people. But it was more about what I had to give up. Not about where I went. And you know, there's going to be tests in your life, brothers and sisters. That's nothing compared to the loss of somebody you love. Some of you are going to spend a spent Christmas without somebody you love dearly. There's nothing in comparison to the loss of somebody that you love. But you never know what are those things that the Lord's going to put his finger on. Let me just ask you. The Lord puts his finger on the most precious treasure of your life. What are you going to do with that? If he puts his finger on my son or my daughter or my grandchildren or my precious wife and says, I'm bringing them home to be with me. Well, they're not mine. I can't keep them. They're his, and I've committed them to the Lord. And I'll see him again. That's the beauty, right? I I got quite a welcoming party that's really starting to gather and gain momentum up in heaven these days. The older I get, the more that's that way. I'm going to have quite a hoorah when we get there. But those are the only things that are eternal. 
humans, people. But you know what holds us back? Is the fear of the Lord putting his finger on the most precious things. Let me tell you, God will not put his finger on something that he will not adequately strengthen your heart and lead you through to do what he's going to do in you. He will do it because he's good. And he has the plans that he has for you are good. They're not evil. They're for a future and a hope. It's not to bring despair. It's to bring encouragement so that when you go through these things, you know what the amazing thing is? Is that you just be, you're now able to trust God fearlessly for everything because you're just like, wow, I gave God the most precious thing in my life, handed it off, and God's in charge, right? God's in charge. And I love him for it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your grace and your kindness would be poured out now on our hearts and our lives. And I pray that you would build us up in a very uh, real way. I know that there are those who, uh, Lord, they're in the throes of maybe you asking them to give something up that's really a treasure to them. And it's a test of the heart. And I just pray that you would strengthen their heart to give them the, the grace for the obedience to carry it through. I pray if there's anybody struggling with the, the bitterness and the, that can come with loss, I just pray that you would set them free, that they would be able to let it go and commit it to you, that you know best, Father knows best. And I just pray that you would meet us for each one of our hearts here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.